Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Eben Kirksey about his new book, Emergent Ecologies. This came out with Duke University Press in 2015, and it's a really great book. It's super fascinating, um, and it's definitely a must-read for anybody who's interested in the field of multi-species ethnography in ecology and its histories and presence and potential futures, in multi-species interactions and emergences and in hope, in animals, in humans, in all kinds of things. So the book takes us into a series of sites in the Americas to look at spaces where multi-species relationships are coming into being, are transforming, are creating ecologies, are building on um, sort of ecologies of abandonment or destruction. Um, It's a really, really fascinating walk through Costa Rica, Panama, New York City, Florida, art installations, laboratories, um, sort of gardens in zones of abandonment, rivers. Um, It's a really wonderful ethnography that takes us into presents, pasts, and futures of beings um, finding ways to coexist. And so you'll hear a bunch about this in the moments to come. So I'll kind of quickly um, let you get to that. But I'll just say it's also a really beautifully written book. And it's a book that comes out of someone who is, um, I think, really admirably doing the work of a scholar artist. Um, And I think this is a space that is coming into being right now for a number of people in a number of different fields who are not trying anymore to separate their work as a creator of art of various sorts, um, writing, visual art, sound art, performance art, and their scholarship, but are rather trying to find ways to bring them together, to speak to each other, to be a whole coherent self. And Evan is very much doing that. Um, We had a chance to talk about his previous book, which was an edited volume um, that looked at a curated exhibition that did that. And this book here that we're talking about today, this monograph, is very much um, also coming out of that really wonderful spirit of, of coming together and being a whole self that's both a scholar and an artist and using those two Um, kinds of zones of activity to feed each other. So I'll let you get to it. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really appreciate the support of the channel that comes from your listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Eben Kirksey about his new book, Emergent Ecologies. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Eben, and thanks very much for taking time out of what I know is a super busy schedule doing all kinds of awesome things to talk about the book. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. So, Evan, let's start, um, even though we've had a chance to talk before, um, let's do this again. Let's start for listeners who haven't had a chance to hear your previous interview by talking a little bit about how you came to the field. What brought you to this field of research? 
Well, basically, when I was an undergrad, a freshman, I wanted to be a biologist when I grew up. Um, in, in high school, I, I uh, worked in a behavioral pharmacology lab where we were working with rats and, um, you know, not so great things were happening to the rats in the lab. Uh, giving them injections was part of my job. Uh, they had these head mounts on them. They would sometimes fall off. Uh, it was an incredibly violent situation. So, so I knew that I didn't want to do animal behavior work in the lab from that high school experience. But I, I decided that I was really interested in the field of ecology. And uh, as a freshman, I signed up to be a research assistant, first in Costa Rica and then in Panama. And I, I started doing a lot of work in the forest. Um, uh, hanging out with ants was was my job. I, I learned how to identify them. And uh, we, we were looking at this one particular ant, the, the fire ant, uh, the little fire ant, Wasmania arapunctata, not the common one that you, you see in Florida, but one that's more common in agricultural plantations. But, but I, I started to question uh, sort of the context of the research as, as a young kid. Um, uh, the, the work that I was doing in Panama was in the middle of what was then the canal zone under a situation of U.S. military occupation. Um, the project that I was working on was in the indirect service of U.S. commercial interests, uh, specifically the, the citrus industry. Um, the little fire ant had become a pest in orange groves in Florida. So this project was trying to figure out um, you know, what, what the, uh, in, in, in the jargon of, of the day, the community regulating factors were of this fire ant. Why wasn't it a problem in Panama and why was it an invasive species in Florida? Um, so those personal experiences of, of just a, a little bit of disquiet with biology as it was sort of regularly functioning. And, and also, I think, a, a sense that the theoretical questions weren't that uh, expansive. It, it seemed like the discipline was re so relentlessly focused on the functional significance of, of things, this explanatory machine of, um, you know, adaptation and fitness was sort of the only kinds of theoretical questions that one might ask. Um, I, I remember it, when I was working at the Smithsonian, one of the senior scientists there asked me if, if I might um, start to inter interview these ants as an ethnographer in, in a sense. He, he knew that I was also interested in anthropology. I was taking um, undergraduate courses both in, in uh, anthropology and, and biology uh, in, in a sort of naive way. He was trying to ask me how I might start to integrate those, those two disciplines. Um, so, so I think like that question stuck with me and was part of the backdrop for what personally led me to um, to try to explore what ethnography might do in a multi-species context. So um, eventually I left biology that I, you know, I, I was going to do two honors theses as an undergrad. Um, what one I did in, in West Papua, my first book, Freedom and Entangled Worlds, um, which started out as my honors thesis from New College in Florida. Um, but the second honors thesis was, was about ants, Ectotoma ruidum, this ant that uh, does surprising uh, forms of cooperation and, and sharing with strangers. Um, and, and I guess I basically just sat on that project for a good 15 years. And basically, that's what led to this book and, and led, you know, to me uh, working in the environmental humanities and, and trying to reconfigure anthropology uh, and, and think about ethnographic practices as, as a way of, of, of using that um, descriptive mode of ethnography to, to interrogate um, human entanglements with other forms of life.
Cool. So we'll hear about some of these ants in the interview to come. And I also want to flag the fact that you just said anthropology, which is a very <laughs> clever pun. So I'm just going to give you credit for that and the nice unintentional or intentional pun there. Uh, I'll, I'll trademark that. <laughs> yeah, you can, just, you can just take credit for that one. I'll give you that one. So the book that we're talking about today, Emergent Ecologies, kind of raises and asks us to ask and dwells in a number of really important and really interesting questions. And as a way to kind of lay the groundwork before I ask you how you came to this, what I want to do is just lay out some of those questions for listeners, um, just kind of right at the beginning. So the book asks, and this is um, in the word of the book right from the introduction, how do certain plants, animals, and fungi move among worlds, navigate shifting circumstances, and find emergent opportunities? And that term emergent is going to be key here. When do new species add value to ecological associations? And when do they become irredeemably destructive? When should we let unruly forms of life run wild? And wildness is also going to be um, a kind of a key term here. And when should we intervene? Now, the book takes readers from Panama to New York City to Costa Rica to Florida um, to, and then sort of back and forth again to speak to a handful of key questions. And I'll lay out some more questions here. And I'm not going to be done with the questions. This is just the second of the third set of questions. So hang in. Which creatures are flourishing and which are failing? at the intersection of divided forces, competing political projects, and diverse market economies. Amid widespread environmental destruction, with radical changes taking place in ecosystems throughout the Americas, where can we find hope? And hope is also going to be a key term here. It also compels us to ask, and these are my words, not the words of the book, what's an ecosystem anyway? How is it? Where is it? Why is it? And what and could uh, what could and should it be? Okay, so Eben, what brought you to this particular project, and not just this project, but this particular shape of a book that manifests this project? I think in, in, in a sense, it was sort of wandering through these worlds uh, initially, again, as, as an undergrad and then coming back, uh, um, you know, some some 10, 15 years later as as a postdoc, um, as an ethnographer of science and just sort of myopically following my nose through through a series of encounters following these these lines of flight, um, uh, you know, both in Central America, but then sort of uh, expanding beyond lo looking at uh, global uh, networks that, that connected these places to New York, to uh, this out of Africa story of disease emergence, which follows all these predictable colonial tropes. Um, and and I, I'd like to say sort of in the beginning that this, this notion of emergence for me is, is not meant to uncritically celebrate the novel and, and very much the opposite. For me, emergence is... Um, um, about emergent diseases, the microbes that suddenly disrupt the predictable functioning of um, hu human economic systems, whether these are, are human pathogens or um, diseases that impact our, our crops or um, uh, the animals that we depend on for, for meat, um, but, but also trying to think about emergent 
diseases that are often beyond the pale of, of human vision, things that are um, destroying worlds all around us, wh- whether or not we, we have the right technologies or modes of storytelling to, to properly grapple with, with these uh, emergent changes in, in worlds that are in part due to us, but also due to these wild agents that are beyond our control. So, but, but I think emergence also contains the promise of, of hope, the promise in, you know, even, even as, um, emergent forms of life are, are destroying worlds, creating order form, order destroying disasters. I, I think there's also emergent associations that, that one might point to um, that do give, give hope. So, so I've tried to both um, uh, explore the interplay of, of these destructive capacities of, of emergent forms of life with, with the, the productive or gener- generative or convivial um, uh, 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 things that come about with, with e- ecological emergences. Great. So let's get right into it then. Um, So you've already talked a little bit about these ants that brought you into the project. And in fact, in the first couple of chapters, we revisit these ants or revisit um, in the context of having talked about them a little bit already at the beginning of our conversation. Chapter one takes us into Barro, Colorado Island in the Panama Canal, which was run by the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. Now, this chapter really interestingly juxtaposes the past and the present of the site, the historical archives of the Smithsonian and your own research as an undergraduate research assistant in what it calls a kind of parallax effect. Um, I love that word parallax. And so can you start us off by bringing us into the significance of this notion of a parallax effect that sort of juxtaposes past and present? Because I think this is not just um, significant in terms of the work that's being done in this chapter. Um, But then if we extend it into the future, it's potentially significant for a phenomenon that we see throughout the book. So in brief, what is a parallax effect and what's the importance of that for the work that you're trying to do here in this earliest part of the book. Yeah, so so in a visual register, parallax is what generates a, a sense of depth perception. So when when you're moving in a train or in a car, the things that are close to you move a lot faster than the things far away. Um, e- even when you're standing still, the fact that we have two eyes in our head, um, you know, brings brings things in, into relief. There, there's a wonderful uh, comic book that that I believe I, I've I've heard on, on on your podcast called Unflattening. Oh where, yeah, Nick Susanis. Yeah, he's yeah awesome. Nick Nick. Nick has a great book where he, he's um, even taking us to other dimensions, asking us to think about what if you had eight eyes and you're a spider? What what what's the parallax effect there? It's not just a doubling, but it's it's seeing double and then some. In, in his words, um, Ellen Strain uh, in in the Panamanian context uh, has talked about these stereoscopic viewing scopes that people were distributed in, in the early 20th century when the Panama Canal was this grand engineering project. That was linking the Americas back in the day when you couldn't hop on an airplane and instantly get from, you know, California to New York. The Panama Canal was this uh, central ar- architecture of, of empire. And the way that one could experience it was with these two images that were taken from slightly different angles that would bring um, the, the sort of... Um, a ginormous machinery that were, were, were used to, to build these these canal locks and in, into uh, into relief so so Ellen strain has written about that both in that uh, specific historical moment um, 
but also, you know, building on her, what I've tried to do is um, do these fast moves through time to think about things like um, what what is the legacy of, of apartheid that that is in existence at, at in a place that was formerly called the the Panama Canal Zone now is called the Reverted Zone. So so in in the architecture of this place, you have buildings that were created by the U.S. government from from a much earlier era where um, you know relationships between different kinds of people were, were naturalized. There were, there were were separate entrances for um, the employees who were earning the gold wage and the employees that were earning the silver wage. Um, Panamanians, often Afro-Caribbeans, um, you couldn't enter the Panama Canal Zone without a special pass in those days. Um, the, the U.S. military left uh, in uh, December of uh, uh, 1999 and and sovereignty over this space reverted to panama now these same buildings um have, have been taken over by um enterprising mestizo intellectuals by indigenous kuna from the caribbean coast by um afro-caribbean communities and um I'm, I'm interested in how how legacies are persisting over time so so doing moves that historians um you know uh, would would maybe be outraged by sort of slipping between the 19th 30s and 1999, slipping between 1999 and 2014, I'm trying to bring into relief um, persistent legacies, you know, very much trying to be attentive to how particular historical events and moments generated ruptures and, and emergent possibilities, but also attending to those continuities, those legacies of empire, those legacies of racial segregation um, that last into the present. So I'm a historian and I'm not outraged. <laughs> so you officially are okay there with Great. historians. Well, yeah. <laughs> tell all the historians. That tell I all the historians. You, you got <laughs> You got to pass. So um, chapter one. So thank you so much. And chapter one kind of introduces the study of these ant populations um, that then continues as you revisit them in the next chapter. So the ants that you studied as an undergraduate research assistant in the zone um, in chapter one um, come back up again. And in chapter two, you return to Panama as a postdoctoral fellow in 2008 and return to work on these ants, Ectotoma ruidum. Ruidum? Ruidum? Ruidum, yeah, you got it. Ectotoma ruidum. Now here you describe the ants as having become ontological amphibians. This is a really key notion uh, really for the entire book, and I think the work the book is doing. So can you talk to us a little bit about these ants and the ways that for you they embody um, what you're calling ontological amphibians? So, so Peter Sloterdijk, this this German philosopher who styles himself as the second coming of Martin Heidegger, has has built on Heidegger to to articulate this strange theory of human exceptionalism. So, so Heidegger famously argued that the stone is worldless, the animal is poor in world, and the human is world forming. Sloterdijk says that the human is amphibious. So, if a literal amphibian, a frog or a salamander, is choosing to live in air or water. He says that the human is uh, choosing amongst worlds, choosing amongst ontologies. Um, and, and what I've tried to do in this book is, is look at other species of, of ontological 
go amphibian. So, so Sloterdijk says that the animal is trapped in the umwelt, what he characterizes as an ontological cage. If you go back and read the original uh, Jakob van Oekskel's account of, of the umwelt, I, I really don't think he sees the human as 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 being exceptional. Um, and and Agamben, I think, has has the clearest reading of that. And and sort of, you know, in in the original von Uxkel article, um, you see that the human has these prosthetics like telescopes. You see the, the the girl wandering in the forest has a different vision of a tree than, than the woodsman. Um, so, so what I've tried to do is in, in this book, in part to get beyond language like invasive species, uh, to think about other organisms that are exceptional in similar sorts of ways as, as the human. So these ontological amphibians, there's multiple species of them that populate the book, are ever wandering amongst worlds and, and forming them in, in um, a convivial alliance with, with others. So, so one of these organisms is Ectotoma, my, my favorite ant, and, and I love saying that, my favorite ant. I, my, my human ants haven't caught on to that yet, but may, maybe they will soon. Um, <laughs> uh, other, other ontological amphibians that I describe in the book are this, this fungus, um, uh, Bacococitrium dendrobatidis. It's it's a kind of chytrid that is rapidly destroying the worlds of literal amphibians. So frogs and salamanders are going extinct because this microbial fungus is destroying their worlds. Um, and, and then I also talk about some plants, uh, cattails, for example, or um, this really interesting grass called Hyperinia rufa. Um, Hyperinia rufa doesn't have rhizomes. The the underground stems that uh, uh, sort of burrow under the soil. That have been used as, as this figure of evasion and burrowing and resistance and emergence by Deleuze and Guattari. So this plant, Hyperinia rufa, doesn't have that in a literal sense in, in terms of like this, this morphological structure under the soil, but it has what they might call animal rhizomes. This, this grass has these seeds with these long flagella-like things on them. So the seeds fall from the plant. They basically scurry through the forest. They, they, the, this flagella-like thing writhes and contracts when you get different um, barometric pressures and humidity levels that, that come into play. The plant sprouts, and then it's very flammable. So this this uh, particular ontological amphibian, Hyperinia rufa, this this uh, grass with animal rhizomes, helped uh, cattle and capitalism and cowboys in, invade the dry forests of Central America. It became a companion in killing. Um, by catching fire, it helped destroy this world, this forest that proved otherwise pretty pretty impenetrable to to the cowboys and, and the cattle. Mm-hmm. And that grass, I think, is um, something that comes up in Chapter 9, yeah? Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll get to that as well. So these ontological amphibians, um, you take us into these ants. There's this wonderful moment just to kind of name check um, another STS scholar who I re- whose work I really adore, Natasha Myers. And you have this moment where you take us into a kind of um, uh, embodied experience a la Natasha Myers of um doing what we can to try to kind of experience the sensory world of these ants. Now, these ants are doing something really interesting here called trophallaxis, okay? And you bring us into the importance of this kind of fluid exchange in the social world of these ants as a way of raising the question, are these ants capable of caring for other beings? Are they capable of this kind of altruism? Did you want to speak to that at all? Because it seems like a pretty important point here. 
Yeah, so trophal axis means nourishment interchange. And this is a word that was coined by William Morton Wheeler, the grand old man of ants, before E.O. Wilson became the grand old man of ants. And probably many of, of your listeners know of E.O. Wilson's sociobiology. And, and what I tried to do is, is read deeply within the myrmecological literature, going back and looking at some of the early theoretical sources that people like Wheeler were drawing on, um, drawing in part on Charlotte Slay's work. Uh, she's got a remarkable book called Six Legs Better that chronicles the intellectual history of, of myrmecology. Um, so, so if you page back to, to Wheeler's original thinking, you find that he seized on this Italian theorist, uh, Pareto. And um, er, early in, in life, Pareto was, was concerned with the economics of rationality. Like, and, and this is sort of the, the, the economics that a lot of behavioral biology is, is, is based on. A, a lot of assumptions aren't uh, anthropomorphic. You know, often um, scholars of multi-species studies confront challenges from um, conventional ecologists or animal behaviorists that were imposing human assumptions on, on these forms of life. But I, I think a lot of these uh, assumptions that they impose are mechanomorphic, um, uh, assuming that ants and other sorts of animals are, are like machines or like robots and making these very rational calculator kind of decisions. Um, but, but what we found in, in actually doing um, observations of these ants. So, so what, what I was trying to do here initially was just straight up ethnography of science. So I showed up in Panama um, wanting to interview people, you know, having this experience as an undergrad that gave me a little bit of insight into this social world of, of tropical biology. But very quickly, I found that, that the people in the social world didn't really want to have an anthropologist showing up, just putting a microphone in their face, doing interviews. So, so I adopted an experimental praxis, or, or sorry, an experimental practice, in part as, as this ethnographic tactic to, to inhabit the lab in a different sort of way. So, so I actually started to design and implement my own biobehavioral experiments with, with ectotoma, exploring this idea of trophallaxis. So so again, this word trophallaxis, nourishment interchange, in short means the exchange of liquid uh, food from, from one adult ant to another. Um, it, in, in a lot of species, they'll, they'll keep this liquid down um, in a specialized organ inside of their body. But with this particular ant, ectotoma, it will carry drops of li liquid around in its mandibles. Um, so so the, the general thought, um, if, if you page forward from Wheeler to E.O. Wilson, is that the ant colony is a superorganism where the adult animal is the rough equivalent to a cell in in in, in a multicellular organism, but but if you use that that metaphor in the case of this ant, Ectotoma, the cells are kind of running wild. They don't stay put within one colony, and they they have they're they're one of the most prolific ants in Panama. Um, in old growth forest, you find probably about two or three nests um, in, in a square meter. They're also flourishing within the abandoned uh, architecture of empire. So you find them in this remarkable place called the City of Knowledge, this uh, place with um, close-cropped lawns that has um, all these abandoned satellite dishes and infrastructure from the U.S. military. This is the former command and control uh, center for, for the U.S. Uh, Southern Command. Um, so, so these ants are flourishing 
in, in worlds that have been there a long time, um, but also these emergent worlds that humans have shaped and transformed. Um, they're very clever at figuring out uh, the light and dark cycles that are associated with electric lights. So um, many of these ants, which in an old growth forest would be strictly um, diurnal coming out in the day, have, have, a, have figured out that uh, they can get the most insects if they come out at night when the electric lights are, are, are on. Um, so so we, we were interested in how these ants share food. So again, this, this word trophallaxis, nourishment, interchange. For Wheeler, the, the grand old man of, of ant biology back in the day, that was what held the colony together by exchanging food. That's sort of what formed the colony. We, we basically found in, in doing this biobehavioral experiment, which, which initially was this ethnographic tactic, a way of inhabiting the lab, but then later, after the book has come out, has turned into an actual scientific study. So we've, we've done this experiment over and over again and come up with p-values and statistical significance, which is what um, you know the, the, the storytelling conventions of science demands, this other knowledge practice that, that we've subsequently sort of inhabited. Um, and, and when I say we, I, I'm, I'm referring to um, Bill Weislow, uh, my, my senior mentor at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, as well as Santiago Mensas, who is uh, a, our, our research collaborator, an undergraduate student from Colombia, who's going on to pursue a, a PhD in ectotoma studies. So, so to make a very long story short, to get to the punchline, um, basically ectotoma shares with strangers, and um, it will share with with members of a other colony that's right next door. It'll share with members of a colony that's 15 miles away. And we found that they're not rational little calculators doing the work of reciprocal altruism, paying attention to who gives a gift on Monday and only reciprocating when those gifts are, are um, you know, given in a symmetrical sort of way. Um, but we, we found that the default mode is sharing. We'll share with pretty much anybody. Um, and, and we also found that sharing breaks down when they're hungry. If, if the ant colony is, um, if you keep food away from the ant colony for a day or two, we find that sharing stops. Um, so, so we did this experiment that sort of gets at some of the fundamental um, thoughts about social life for, for insects and, and offers, you know, a different sort of interpretation. Awesome. Now, you just mentioned um, a little bit ago the city of knowledge, right? This sort of place that was formerly Fort Clayton. This is the focus of Chapter 3. It's a really fascinating space, and it doesn't just um, include these ants that you were talking about. You also bring us into the importance of frogs here, and not just frogs, but chemical weapons and unexploded bombs. Can you talk a little bit about the latter? What are unexploded bombs doing in this story? Yeah, for, first of all, the City of Knowledge is a place where Michel Foucault would have had a field day, not not just for the name, but sort of the way that governmentality works there. So so in this place where, it, again, it used to be this command and control headquarters for the U.S. military, now that the U.S. government has retracted, what you see is a lot of these um, international organizations like the Red Cross, like the Nature Conservancy. Um, you see a lot of pharmaceutical trials being done by U- U.S. universities. Um, so, so this this space that um, 
was was once um, sort sort of a, a integral node in, in, in the U.S. Uh, political uh, uh, project in, in in the Americas, but also I, I think you must see this as as a, a critical node connecting the Pacific Ocean and, and the Atlantic Ocean, a, a really key geostrategic point for for the U.S. Uh, military. Now that it's been taken over by a Panamanian national government, um, you see this proliferation of of institutions of governmentality that that you know are doing doing similar sorts of work but in a more distributed uh, sort of way. So so in this place, right right beyond the fence, right beyond these suburban lawns where you see caimans basking in the sun, where you see um, agoutis, these small little rodents foraging for 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 nuts, where you see ectotoma, my favorite ant, proliferating amidst uh, all sorts of strange chemical ecologies. Just past that fence, you have uh, abandoned bombing ranges. So um, at, at the point when the U.S. military withdrew, the Panamanian government wanted the U.S. military to clean up their mess. They left behind, in each one of these five bombing ranges, about 60,000 unexploded bombs and chemical weapons. Um, at that point, the U.S. Gover- government said, no, um, we don't have the funds to clean it up. And interestingly, the Nature Conservancy weighed in and, and basically said that um, the, the ecosystem would be better off if these bombs were left there. Um, it, it, it sounds in some ways like a really cynical thing for, for this environmental organization to say that. And, and in fact, they were uh, doing a contract for, for the Pentagon. Um, but it, it, I've actually come to think of these bombs and unexploded weapons as, as figures of hope. Um, sort of using the the notion of the pharmacon, um, you know, that, that dates back to Plato and you see in Derrida and most recently in Isabel Stinger's work to think about the poisonous substance that in the right dose might become the cure. So, so these bombs usually function as these protective talismans that um, keep people out, that keep capitalism out of these multi-species communities. But then sometimes they violently uh, cause uh, uh, pain and death. They explode sometimes. So these the Pharmacon has unstable properties, and and I, I came to think about um, them not only as figures of hope, like very ambivalent figures of hope, um, but also as as rivets that function to hold ecosystems into place. So, in the introduction of the book, I, I described this old metaphor from Ehrlich and Ehrlich in the in the 80s. They talked about ecosystems as having these these functional parts. They said that if you walked onto an airplane and you saw somebody on the wing popping out rivets uh, that held the wing in place, you should be afraid to fly on that partially disassembled flying machine. Um, but, you know, what, what I've found, not only with these bombs, but the addition of species to ecological communities, that it, it's it's not just things that are missing that, that are, are there, but there's new things holding systems into place. So so they, they compared Ehrlich and Ehrlich, these, uh, these rivets to species, and they said that every time a species goes extinct, that an ecosystem losing an essential part, but but I actually didn't find essential parts um, in these uh, disaster zones and in, in places like these bombing ranges in, in Panama, in places where cattle and capitalism came in to, to level places. Um, I, I found not a predictable process of succession where the same community that was there 
a long time ago has reemerged. But I, I found communities that were contingent assemblages that have come together at, at the intersection of, of empire and capital and, and all these oblique powers. Um, new modes of flourishing sometimes. Sometimes things are lost. Sometimes things are gained. Um, so, so really, again, I, I, I see um, these rivets in, in an ambivalent way. But, you know, in embracing the, the pharmacological properties of hope, maybe, you know, when, when you hope for something and it arrives, often that moment of arrival is a profound disappointment. When you're when you're hoping for something that doesn't arrive, that's that's disappointing, too. So so I'm trying to chart the, the play of hope in this book and, and look for figures like those bombs that anchor hope. Thank you so much. Um, so not just um, bombs, right, are figures that anchor hope, but also we talk a lot, or you talk a lot about the importance of frogs in that chapter. And frogs will continue um, to follow us through the story. And let's follow them as they follow through some of these chapters. Now, in chapter four, you talk about um, a project caring for frogs at EVAC, okay, which is a, a kind of um, amphibian conservation center. And you bring us into the work of Heidi Ross and Edgardo Griffith in their efforts to protect frogs from a very particular kind of pathogenic fungus. This is the chytrid fungus that you um, I think mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation. Now you also hear, and this is something that recurs in a lot of the chapters in a way that I think is really, really fascinating. You talk about your own experience working through these issues and your own experience specifically volunteering time to care for frogs that had gone extinct in the wild. And you talk about participant observation, both at the amphibian arc in Panama and also at the Bronx Zoo in New York City. But one really interesting example here emerges, and this is something that um, is a kind of work that we, I think, had a chance to talk about previously and that we will definitely have a chance to talk about again in later chapters. And this is your work um, through creating a kind of art installation. Can you tell us a little bit about the utopia for the golden frog? For listeners who are not familiar with this work and haven't had a chance yet to read the book, what is the utopia for the golden frog and what's its significance in terms of what you want to leave us with um, in this part of the book and in this chapter? So basically that disease you mentioned, the chytrid fungus, has pushed the Panamanian golden frog to the brink of extinction in Panama. So so there are people like Heidi and Edgardo who are working there um, in, in Panama to, to create a, a a bubble of happiness, if you will, for, for these frogs. They've um, built up this facility that is biosecure. It keeps the fungus out. They treat all the frogs that come in with Lamisil, which, you know, this antifungal cream you can buy off the shelf and they basically kept them in, in this facility and um, are, are trying to imagine a future where they might escape once again where they might throw open the hatches and let these frogs run wild um, the problem is that in, in the wild the fungus is still there if they were let out they would likely die again um, a, a backdrop or sort of a, a parallel to, to, to what's going on in Panama is what's happening in the U.S. with this species. So the U.S. government um, ended the military occupation in Panama December 1st, 1999. Again, amidst much violence, you know, in, in 1989, um, there was this massive assault on the people of Panama. Experimental weapons were used. Um, lots of people killed. Um, poor neighborhoods bombed. There's, there's a long legacy of U.S 
U.S. unilateral intervention that, that makes a, a lot of people in Panama suspicious of, of any sort of um, regime to manage life and death. So, so the U.S. government... Um, gave a permit to the Baltimore Zoo and Aquarium to import the Panamanian golden frog under under international law, the CITES Treaty. You need these documents to, to move endangered species across borders. In giving this permit, they granted ownership of an entire species uh, to the Maryland, uh, 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 sorry, the, the Baltimore Zoo and Aquari- Aquarium in, in Maryland. And um, the, this, this, um, the zoo basically manages the life of the species in accordance with centralized biopolitical regimes. There's there's someone who basically takes note of every birth and every death of, of these frogs in captivity. So so when when these frogs initially arrived in Baltimore, they bred and everyone was super excited. Um, they produced uh, about two thousand babies. Um, very quickly they ran out of space in Baltimore and um, they started shipping them to other zoos. So now you can find Panamanian golden frogs in the Houston Zoo or the San Diego Zoo or, or places like Disney World. Um, when the zoological community ran out of space, instead of sending these frogs back to Panama, they started euthanizing them. So now every time a Panamanian golden frog has has a clutch of babies, again, about 2,000 of, of them are born, they let the tadpoles hatch and they let the tadpoles turn into to frogs, undergo metamorphosis. They let the babies get a little bigger until they're sub-adults. And then they select 60 of those animals to live and then they euthanize the rest so so the utopia for the golden frog of of panama the title of this artwork that i created is something of an ironic joke um it's it's a a living ecosystem that we installed inside of a refrigerator and if you're a frog probably living inside of a refrigerator is not a very utopic place to be Um, but what we did is create the conditions of bare life for this frog we installed Plant life, a multi-species community that would be good to live with. We seeded it with fruit flies, a, a mutant strain that people are using in the zoos to feed the frogs. They're they're mutants that don't fly, and they're easier to feed to the frogs, but and they don't get out as much. Um, so so after creating this uh, sort of this sort of utopia in a fridge, um, we took a Arduino, um, this this little uh, uh, computer chip that you can uh, put onto various things. So we took over the temperature and humidity of the fridge. Um, we, we let the Arduino control the light-dark cycles in a 24-hour cycle and kept the temperature regime within what what the ideal range for the species is. We installed it in a gallery in New York where there wasn't air conditioning in the summer, where it would have been too hot to keep these frogs. Um, and, and then we posted our, our readings up to the internet. We showed, we tried to show to the world that we had indeed created, you know, this, this place where they could live. We put a webcam inside to let people see what it looked like. And then I started petitioning the, the people um, in the zoological community who owned the species to see if they would send us some instead of euthanizing them. Um, and in short, our, our project failed. We failed to actually get frogs, but it, I think it was ethnographically successful. Um, George Marcus describes what he calls para-ethnographic objects, basically things that are conversation pieces. So um, 
I, I sort of learned as much as I could about the Panamanian golden frog to a point and, you know, interviewed people about it, but only in actually a, applying for permission um, to, to get these frogs did I really learn the nuanced intricacies of the legal regimes that are governing the life and death of, of this frog. So so we were doing a, an, an act of what Beatrice de Costa would call tactical biopolitics, not just critiquing how life and death are managed, but creating this concrete proposal for managing life and death differently. Now, how did these concerns or perhaps related concerns play out in another performative experiment that you talk about in the book? And this is in chapter six, also involving frogs, but here's Xenopus frogs. And this is an experiment where you um, and a, again, an interdisciplinary group offered free pregnancy tests for humans and free fungus tests for frogs. This is another really interesting kind of um, performative experiment that speaks to and informs uh, a lot of the concerns in the book. So can you talk a little bit about that for listeners? Yeah, so so the term performative experiment comes from Delia Hanna, a, a philosopher at, at Columbia um, who got her PhD from Columbia, um, who was a collaborator of mine in this project. My other collab- collaborators include Charlie Nichols, as well as Lisa Jean Moore and the digital media artist Grayson Earl. And, and basically what we were trying to do is, is unpack the implosion histories that have coalesced around this pregnancy test. So um, for starters, this pregnancy test has been implicated in an out-of-Africa story of, of disease emergence. And like other out-of-Africa stories or um, contagion narratives, it had all sorts of problematic colonial tropes. You know, Africa, the diseased continent, um, uh, outbreak narratives um, have, have con- conventionally stigmatized different groups of people and lives styles. In this case, it was stigmatizing a particular frog, Xenopus. So so there actually is empirical basis for this outbreak narrative. Um, Xenopus frogs can carry the chytrid fungus, the one that's that's driving other frogs to the brink of extinction and actually causing extinctions. So um, they can basically harbor the disease while um, not being sick themselves. This... this, this, this trait, the, the ability to survive the disease, led some journalists to, to brand the frog as the typhoid Mary of amphibians. So typhoid Mary was, was, a, was a woman who, who cooked for rich people, um, who had typhoid, who didn't have symptoms of typhoid, but a bunch of rich, rich people in New York, New York City started dying of typhoid, and they identified her as the source. They basically incarcerated her. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a way... We were basically trying to explore ways of caring for this frog, Xenopus, while also caring for the worlds of frogs that are endangered by its mode of existence. It, it turns out Xenopus isn't alone in carrying this, this fungus around the world. And if you look at the genetics of the fungus itself, it has multiple origins. It, it doesn't have a very clear origin in Africa. It's been in Asia for at least 100 years. Um, there's specific strains in Brazil that people find with very old and very distinct lineages. Um, probably what's happened is that diverse market economies and biotech schemes have brought different strains of chytrid fungi together where they've had um, 
what the literature terms parasexual events. So this kind of fungus doesn't have straight up heteronormative style sex. Um, sometimes um, these spores will insist next to each other. And, and its normal mode of reproduction is clonal. So microbes making copies of microbes making copies of microbes. So sometimes that copying goes a little bit wrong and you end up with a chytra that has twice as many chromosomes or maybe one less or um, things get weird in chytrid reproduction. But but also you can have these parasexual events where two spores insist next to each other and then these root-like structures called rhizoids touch each other and exchange gen genetic elements. So quite probably what has happened is that the biotech um, biomaterials marketplace and also the food marketplace, these, these, these microbes are transported around in crayfish as well as bullfrogs, specialty food items used by um, people throughout the southern United States. Um, also, a Asian uh, markets often have live live bullfrogs, and there's this very vibrant global trade. So, so basically, we we di we were trying to diagnose um, some some problems with with the circulation of these forms of life and in, in these global assemblages, and and basically found that the velocity of these markets was so overwhelming. It wasn't just frogs moving around. Um, Xenopus, this out of Africa story, but all sorts of other things. So, so back to the other part of this performative experiment, the fact that these frogs were used in pregnancy and offering the free pregnancy tests in galleries was, was sort of another dimension to the project. Um, and we've actually co-authored a, a piece that's forthcoming in the journal in Environmental Humanities next month that deals with sort of the more the queer reproductive politics in, embedded in this experiment. Basically, we're trying to uh, unravel the ontological choreography of pregnancy and experiment with ways of configuring ontologies differently, um, playing with um, uh, abilities to choose, whether that's gametes from a, a sperm bank, uh, this queer marketplace that adds value to genetic material based on um, you know, so, so social worlds that value certain traits, um, but also the ability to choose different temporalities of pregnancy, to choose different technologies that might destabilize um, conventional modes of, of composing a life in, in, in the contemporary era. Now, Evan, wait, there are, there's so much um, in the book that, um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about that I'd love to get to. Um, but we're, what I want to do is take us into two moments that I think in the chapters to come um, highlight some of, um, some of, right, just a couple of really important points that are happening here. And then readers can or listeners can hopefully become readers and explore the rest. The first moment I want to ask you to talk a little bit about is a moment that moves us from frogs to macaques. And in chapter seven, you talk about a rhesus macaque who ran around Florida in 2009 and became known as the mystery monkey of Tampa Bay. So I love this moment, right? This also brings us back to Florida, um, which is uh, the place that you were born, right? You say in the book. Yeah. You talk in this chapter about forming an interdisciplinary team to study other rhesus macaques. And this becomes a really interesting way to think about a key term that came up right at the beginning of our conversation. Um, and that really forms the heart of at least some of what's going on here. And that's wildness. So can you talk a little bit for us about how your experience in this case uh, might help speak to and inform and, and perhaps trouble what we think of when we think about wildness? 
Yeah, so so in part, I'm, I'm departing from Sarah Franklin's notion of the new wild. So she contrasts earlier visions of wildness where you had uh, domestic geese opposed to wild geese or domestic hogs opposed to wild boar with the new sort of wildness that is emerging within realms of biotechnology. So so I think the Kittred story that I just told embodies that that notion of wildness. I'm also trying to think about this this mode of wildness that is emerging um, sort of unintentionally from various human dreams and schemes. So, so this story in Florida, and, and by the way, if anyone's Facebook friends with me, um, I was just there for spring break and had some wild encounters on the Silver River. And you can see all these monkey pictures that I just took. So the monkeys are still there and they're flourishing. Um, but but they're part of this, this, this story um, – in Florida, where um, basically, if you go there and, and you go to the Silver River, and and it's highly, it's a great Florida vacation. It's better than Disney World. It's it's better than Daytona Beach. Um, you, you can you can go on these glass bottom boat tours, and and the the tour boat captain will tell you the story about Tarzan and about how uh, Tarzan was filmed on the Silver River with Johnny Weissmuller and um, these monkeys extras in the film uh, escaped and have proliferated. Um, it turns. Turns out that if you actually watch all the Johnny Weissmuller films with Tarzan, you never see a single rhesus macaque. Cheetah the chimpanzee is a very different organism from uh, the rhesus macaque. Um, but the actual story is is sort of more comical and interesting. Um, a, a guy uh, a, a, who went by the name of Colonel Tui, and that was his first name, not a military title, actually purchased these monkeys from a carnival sideshow in Albany, New York. And uh, he outfitted this, this island that he created in the Silver River with all sorts of monkey swings and um, little houses for them to stay in. Um, but he didn't realize when he put them there, he let six monkeys go, that rhesus macaques are very capable swimmers. So they, they swam away uh, the very same day that he released them and have been very fruitful and multiplied. And, and now um, within this this uh, this area, Silver River State Park, um, there's at least 180. Um, during my trip a couple of weeks ago, I encountered a couple of other troops that are outside of the park um they're they're going wild they've been sighted all over the state um rumors are that a troop of macaques is approaching the the georgia border at least as of last year um, so, so I used this this extended study of, of the macaques, and I did the research in collaboration with Aaron Riley, who's an ethnoprimatologist at San Diego, uh, her graduate student Tiffany Wade, as well as Elon Abril, a, uh, a PhD uh, candidate in, uh, at the CUNY Graduate Center, who is finishing up next week and defending. And, and what we were trying to do is both characterize the affect that is at play in these encounters, how um, affects can leap from body to body. In, in these encounters that become intense. So thinking about wildness in, in these moments where people are using the monkeys as mirrors and windows into their own imagined primate nature, um, but also how vi violent um, some of these encounters can, can get and um, how there's an asymmetrical risk and vulnerability at play in, in, in these, these worlds. And here we're, we're building very much on, on the work of, of Juno Perenas, who's, who's studied similar dynamics in in um, Southeast Asia with, with orangutans um, to, to think about how asymmetrical risks are at play when species meet 
So the, the people who encounter these monkeys are on boats. Um, they're often tossing food at them, um, making chimpanzee sounds and um, joking with each other. But the patterns that they feed the monkeys in very much determine um, what kinds of interactions unfold. So uh, through Aaron Riley, I learned about the very complicated dominance hierarchies that are at play in macaque social worlds. It used to be thought that the alpha male was the one who called the shots, but it turns out that his presence in the troop is only contingent on whether or not the the, the women in the, the troop, the a coalition of, of elder females sort of determines, um, you know, which 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 males they, they want to let hang around. Um, so, so that that monkey is very visible. The the alpha male, which um, got named by uh, Bob Godshock, a citizen scientist who who worked with us on the river. Um, so you'll see the alpha male up front, but you also see the alpha female. And um, the the really interesting thing about macaque dominance hierarchies is that the third person, the third monkey in line to get food is the alpha female's youngest daughter. Um, people want to feed the babies when they're there. So they're often throwing food uh, to the young, cute looking monkeys. And um, that is a situation that produces conflict. Um, some people are deliberately trying to produce conflict. And these these um, interactions where people are feeding the monkeys are often drawing them down towards the river where they become vulnerable to attack by, by alligators. Um, so, so basically, we found that sometimes feeding produced violence within the macaque social world, um, but the, the humans were relatively safe in the encounter. Um, it, in a sense, the, the stories that we told, we, we, we learned about some incidents, incidents where monkeys did actually get eaten by alligators, um, got eaten by hawks. Most of the encounters ended happily um, in the sense that um, there, there wasn't a, a severe um you know, injury to any of the monkeys while we were doing the, the work, but we were trying to attend to wildness um, in its capacity to spin out of control and its capacity to um, make vulnerable members of, of a social world more vulnerable. And, and also the ways that, um, you know, th things are running wild um, on pr unpredictable lines of flight that are escaping any ability of, of people in the current era to manage and control. So, so we, we try to interrupt some of the conventional ways of thinking and speaking about invasive species in this chapter as well. When you start killing plants that don't that aren't perceived as belonging in a particular place, um, people aren't aren't thinking about the subjectivity and experience of the actual organism. I, I think when when you're confronting the presence of primates in a space where um, conventional logic says that they don't belong, you have to think of, about a whole host of other other questions. This actually really beautifully brings me to the other thing that I wanted to ask you about. Right, so there are other chapters here that we won't have a chance to talk about um, that we'll kind of skip over on the way. There's a really wonderful chapter here, Chapter 8, that looks at multi-species households in Florida, takes us into pythons and birds that live with um, and sort of have relationships with people. There's also a really interesting chapter that takes us into Palo Verde National Park as what you call an emergent agro-industrial ecosystem. And this is where that grass um, with the cowboys and the cattle comes up um, that you mentioned a little bit um, earlier. But what I want to do is take us into the end of the book. And this is a way that chapter 10 kind of segues into the conclusion. 
in chapter 10, you take us into a place called Monteverde Cloud Forest School. Now, this is a really interesting space where, as you show here, there are people making decisions in caring for um, what's an emergent forest here about which species to nurture and which species to kill. And so you can sort of hear how this comes from um, what you were actually just talking about. Now, this issue of how to care um, in this dynamic that involves may having to make a choice about what to nurture and what to kill, this is very much something that comes up in the conclusion. The conclusion asks what seems to me to be a central question, both for the book and beyond, and I'd like to ask you to speak to it as we kind of move to our conclusion as a way perhaps of wrapping up. Here's the question that it poses. How should we love in a time of extinction? You talk about here the importance of, in the words of the book, love in ecological communities means living with the necessary labor of killing. So, Evan, as a way of kind of maybe bringing us to a conclusion, can you talk about this? How should we love in a time of extinction? So, so the final chapter of the book focuses on, on the, the work of Milton Brennis, a, a Costa Rican farmer, an organic intellectual who is literally gardening in the ruins. He's, he's gardening in the ruins of, of, of cattle and capitalism and, and caring for particular plants and animals in, in these multi-species worlds. So, so care in this context, as, as you said, involves this, this labor of, of, of love, but also this labor of, of death and, and killing. Um, so choosing to, to love one species in, in these multi-species assemblages involves figuring out how to kill the, al- or the enemies and, and cultivate the allies of, 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 of that particular plant or animal that you happen to love. So, so making that distinction is, is a potentially high, is a very high stakes and potentially arbitrary distinction, you know, who, who to love and, and, and who to kill. Um, so, so Milton um, uh, basically uh, answered that question in terms of situated effect and action rather than categorical distinctions like native and alien. Um, he, he found that actually earthworms, um, undocumented laborers rumored to have come from California, were, were key to, to enabling a a multi-species flourishing in, in this blasted landscape. So, so basically, the, the Cloud Forest School inherited this land that had been trampled by cattle, that had been compacted. The soil was was like concrete. It was lifeless. And Milton basically used detritus that he collected from the lunch of school children who were going to the school, as, as well as... Um, uh, you know the actual food and then the milk cartons to create these these little um, uh, bits of compost uh, so he he would uh, germinate seeds he figured out how to care for each each different kind of seed um, to to kill the parasites that were um, often lurking on the seeds uh, and and then he planted them each in these tiny little um, bits of compost and those balls of compost helped it, it, the 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 seedlings get a foothold in in the rhizosphere. So, so the rhizosphere is um, the, the area of the soil that's around plant roots. So the area wh- where he was working was covered by this African grass, uh, star grass, a, a different grass from the ones that people were contending with in the lowlands of Costa Rica with that, um, those animal rhizomes that are spreading. This, this grass had um, both literal rhizomes and, and the ability to sort of climb up in these huge bushes that overshadowed other forms of life that created these dense stands that were impenetrable to people. 
people. And it also didn't give other plants a lot of opportunity to germinate. So, so his key enemy in, in this reforestation project was that star grass. He tried to figure out all sorts of innovative ways of killing. Um, he found that if he went in with weed whackers or machetes, that it would quickly re-sprout, um, convincing his his colleagues. He, he, he heads up the maintenance department, and it's very difficult labor um, to, to work with a machete and, and kill uh, this plant. So he, so he figured out a way of, of killing that channeled death back into life rather than just chopping up the grass, leaving it for dead where rhizomes can re-sprout. He figured out that actually bringing alien animals into the space again, um, horses and, and cattle in low numbers, were, they became companions in killing that allowed for a convivial emergence of, of plants and animals that he cared about. So. Um, some plants that emerged uh, that were not actively planted in this 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 reforestation program proved to be allies to Milton's project. One was an aster, a bush that, that they simply called monte, a, a word that means weed. Um, they, they found that monte stands um, facilitated the growth of other native plants. Mont- monte is this weed that just spreads out, sends thousands of seeds out at once. But these, these carpeted uh, stands of monte quickly had other trees emerging within them. Fiddlewood um, was was one. Um, and Milton was basically um, caring for species that were convivial. Um, he planted a lot of Inga punctatum, a, a, a plant that's known as ice cream bean in English. It was one of the favorite re- recess snacks of the kids, and it also is a favorite food of monkeys and toucans. He, he was trying to enlist um, multiple species and multiple social worlds in this forest, rather than create a place that was outside of, of culture outside of um, relations of use, he was trying to interest the children in uh, particular plants, showing them which ones were valuable timber species, which ones would attract pigs, which are valuable game animals. Um, but in addition to attracting um, the, these these human social worlds, people who would care for this forest on into the future, um, he also tried to enlist uh, frugivores, animals that would come in and eat these fruits, bringing seeds of other plants. So Milton planted a total of 12 species and, and I worked with him in, in doing this labor of digging holes, putting trees into the holes, and caring for the seedlings as, as they emerged. I did the initial planting um, with him in 2008, and by the time I went back in 2014, these trees were towering up over my head, places that had been blasted, looking like concrete. These barren, windswept spaces had had become this this lively forest. And I, I went uh, with with the uh, uh, famed Costa Rican naturalist Eladio Cruz to count the unexpected emergences, the 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 kinds of life, the the species of plants that had come about and in, into this assemblage uh, of their own accord that exceeded the the dreams of Milton. That this 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 network he created of, of organisms was was always enlisting others, always making um, making a world that could not just be inhabited by the self, but by a multitude of others that made it a more convivial place. So, so when I went back with Eladio, we, we found dozens of species just in, in a cursory day, day long biodiversity survey of this place. Um, so, so for, for me, Milton's project grounds hope 
in um, in in a more interesting way, I suppose, um, than 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 the bombs. Maybe a less am, ambivalent way, a, a way of grounding hope in the figures of actual living organisms that that will flourish beyond um, uh, the the human. So um, we we might think of, of of wild emergences in the future that that are exceeding our capacity to care, exceeding our our capacity to to, to manage. So, so so for me, his work is, is a nice way of thinking. Um, you know how, how how we might create these spaces, how we might craft proposals to ones ones that we love, with the idea that that they're going to go wild along unexpected lines of flight and invite others into the world with them. Well, that's a perfect note to end on, I think. So, Evan, there's a ton of material um, now that we're uh, wrapping up that we didn't have a chance to talk about. The book is exceptionally rich, and I hope listeners will go and find themselves a copy and read it themselves. But in the meantime, is there anything at all that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? I'd just like to say a little bit about what I'm doing today. So um, here in Brooklyn, I'm, I'm working with a collective of, of artists. I, I have a, a team of five curators, and I've brought uh, uh, 50 artists together in this this uh, uh, space in, in Brooklyn. And we're animating a lot of the themes in the book. The show is called Emergent Ecologies, and um, it opens later this month, April the 30th. We're going to have live performance art in this space. Um, there's going to be endangered frogs and mutant fruit flies, as as well as all sorts of artworks that are illuminating the different ways that um, both disasters are unfolding in environmental worlds all around us, but also pointing to surprising emergences that that are hopeful, pointing to specific things um, here in New York City, specific kinds of plants that are very tenacious, good at living in a post-industrial landscape that has been blasted by humans, but, but also thinking about, um, you know, some problematic emergences in the context of biotechnology, thinking about ways that CRISPR-Cas9 and other gene editing softwares, epigenetic organisms, epigenetically modified organisms that have been tweaked with tools of molecular biology are starting to run wild. So, so it's exploring the themes in the book, but also exceeding the book in many important ways, um, exploring lines of flight and arguments that I didn't have a chance to develop in the text, but in conversation with very talented artists that include not an alternative, um, a sort of refashioning of the Natural History Museum by some very interesting um, New York intellectuals. Um, we've got Grayson Earl, the same uh, digital media artist who worked with me on, on the, uh, the Utopia for the Golden Frog, uh, Krista Dragomer, a, a sound artist who's doing multi multimedia installations. A, a lot of really interesting stuff is going to be in the gallery. So the details um, are up on Facebook and online. The show uh, starts April 30th and uh, will be up for three weeks. And then we'll also have a flash in the pan event on June 18th. So it's in Brooklyn. The, the neighborhood is is on, on the margins of, of Bed-Stuy and Clinton Hill near the Class G train for those who are familiar with New York City. Great. And aside from that, is there anything else um, aside from working on what sounds like a really fabulous exhibition that you are working on right now that's inspiring you? 
Yeah, so my, my new book project is exploring futures of the human species. So um, basically thinking about how tools, again, like CRISPR-Cas9, are, are enabling people to make their own evolutionary and ecological decisions. So um, the, the new book is... Um, uh, being written at the moment, and with any luck, maybe it'll be a year or two before that one's out. Wow. Well, best of luck with that. Slow down a little bit. Leave room for the rest of us to get some books out. But really, honestly, congratulations on a great book, Evan, and best of luck with all the things that you're doing, um, and especially good luck with the exhibition. Thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me today. Thanks, Carla. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time.